Welcome to Unboxy World, the podcast where philosophy meets tech. In each episode, we're connecting the dots between philosophy, technology, society, science, and progressive thought. And together with brilliant minds across the world who dare to challenge the way we think and live in today's society, we are unboxing our minds one episode at a time. I am Ria Salting. I am a tech professional during the day and a philosopher at night. And if you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest unboxed episode. So let's get started. Let's unbox ourselves. modern tech executives learn from the street dialogues of the ancient philosophers? Well, quite a lot, it turns out. Ancient wisdom doesn't grow old. In fact, one could argue that the teachings are more relevant now than ever. To learn more about the topic, we interview Ben Wilberforce Ritchie, who's a philosopher, author, and an ethics manager, and a true ancient philosophy enthusiast. He walks us through the basic principles of what some of the most prominent philosophers throughout history were exploring and how this knowledge could be applied today in the modern environment. In today's episode, you will learn why ancient philosophy is a highly relevant topic in a modern society today. You'll get a crash course into the teachings of some of our most famous philosophers. What a modern leader would behave like according to each philosopher. And lastly, what a commercial philosopher could do in the modern environment today. So let's get to it. Welcome back to the show. So hello, welcome to Unbox Your World, Ben Wilberforce Ritchie. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So very nice to have you here today. And uh, I have been looking for um, uh, a philosopher who could explain modern leadership for tech companies. So I was quite excited that I found you because uh, it hasn't been an easy find. <laughs> yeah, well, philosophers are a rare breed, especially in the modern <laughs> world. So it's, it's just great that it, it came to pass. <laughs> yeah, perfect. So let's um, dive right in then. So I mean, so you're you're saying then that um, that you think that uh, philosophy is uh, highly relevant in our modern society today. So, what, why do you think that is? So the reason being that it was relevant in society two thousand years ago with the ancient philosophers. If we look at ancient Greece, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates the questions that they asked and the answers that they gave still haven't been refuted today. Now, I believe that that's not because they're not relevant, but because that human thought back then had progressed so vividly, so broadly, and they cared so much about the meaning of the questions that it is still applicable today and that we actually haven't come up with anything that can overturn or refute these ideas in a categorical way. The principle for me, though, is that when we look at ancient philosophers, and I'll cover some of them today, they were concerned with how we live. Some of them used principles, some of them used 
ways of being. Some of them just lived in the moment. But the key was how we live. And when I look at society today, I wonder if we're asking that question enough or whether we are just looking at how we churn, how we train people to do jobs, to produce products. But is that really the purpose of life? And would they do that much better if they had that inner feeling, that inner knowledge of who they are and what their purpose was? So that's why I think philosophy is relevant, both within business and within wider society still. You said that the, the questions that they were asking in the past is still relevant. Um, do you think we'll ever get closer to the answer? Or is it just going to be the never-ending? <laughs> it, it could well be never-ending. But yeah. I'm okay with that, Maria, because when you start to ask about the questions of free will or the question on justice, liberty, ethics – Those things have to be dynamic to the times. And I think that if you look back through history at what ethics meant, people might have been able to give you their take on ethics, maybe even without realising it. But as long as they felt it was right in the moment, that's what they had to live by. Now, for me, asking questions is the most important thing. If we get an answer or not is by the by. If you want a, a metaphor... I have an ever-increasing stack of books on my floor from what people have recommended me, great novels, wonderful fiction, good historical fact. And in the past, I used to think, I'm never going to get to the end of this book stack. How awful is that? And now I go, how brilliant is it that there are so many wonderful ideas on my floor? And whether I get to the end of that stack is not relevant. It's the process which is important. It's the journey. And I feel the same with questions. You could say that we'll ask these questions forever and we'll never get to the end point. But how brilliant a journey is that, that we can Mm. constantly question each other, learn from one another and increase our knowledge of ourselves and our world through doing that? Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting because you said that um, ethics, like, I guess um, some, uh, the answer to ethics will be very different today because we have um societies look different so um you know now we talk about ethics in social media but that wasn't a thing back in the days right so (laughs) um yeah so um but i think um it would be uh, super interesting if you could um walk us through some um yeah the teachings of some of the famous philosophers and uh explain to listeners um you know what would be how would a modern leader act according to the teachings of that philosopher um and uh, you know and then what could uh, modern leaders learn from these philosophers today in your opinion absolutely yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely it'd be mm-hmm. a pleasure to do so and i think with these four philosophers that i've chosen some of whom were leaders mm-hmm. themselves others of whom were advisors it's very useful if we consider what sort of leader would they be if they use the same principles? And then also what sort of leaders these philosophers expected there to be? So some of them would have thought, yes, my mantra, my philosophy would make me a leader. Others said, no, my mantra, my philosophy advises leaders on how Mm -hmm. to become those individuals that we need. So there are two folds that we can look at here. And inevitably with this, uh, I'll do my best to remain akin to what they said, related to the future. And as you say, we're now dealing with things that they never even considered, such as social media, Mm. the technological advances that we've seen today. But I think that 
the same principles apply in how we lead, how we lead the teams we have, how we motivate the people around us and how we inspire others to find that purpose themselves. So I chose four philosophers to take a look at today, mm -hmm. three Greek and one Roman. I focused it purely on Western Greek ancient philosophy. There is a wealth of other philosophy out there. And it's something that I need to get better at understanding. Mm -hmm. It's something the world needs to do, diversify our philosophy. But my background was in ancient Greek philosophy. So I felt it was useful to stick with that for now. The first one is Epicurus. And I'll term Epicurus the um, reluctant leader. Um, sorry, we'll, 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 stop, we'll stop that. We'll, we'll say Plato, sorry. We'll start with Plato okay. rather than Epicurus. <laughs> um, so we'll start with Plato, who's the reluctant leader. Now, Plato existed in 375 BC. An Athenian grew up in Athens, and he was a student of Socrates. Plato was very famous for writing down a lot of what Socrates said, because Socrates, as a philosopher, didn't write down anything. He refused to teach anything. He just used dialogue. And that's an interesting point that we can use as we discuss Plato. But the reason I call Plato the reluctant leader is that he held the concept that not only does power corrupt, but that the desire for power also destroys people. Mm -hmm. So to have that desire to be a leader, to gain as much power as possible, is in Plato's mind a self-destroying prophecy. So the leader that Plato wishes to see is in fact a leader who never wanted to be there in the first place. Now, Plato's one of Plato's most famous works is The Republic. And The Republic is a commentary on the state of Athenian democracy at the time. In ancient Athens, there were two parties, in effect, as we'd see them today. The oligarchs, the elite wealth who said, we know what we're doing. We will run the country. We'll run the city. You do what we say. And democracy, which said... We don't want an elite versus a poor. We don't want a wealth pause divide. We want every citizen to have an equal right to bring charges, to fight in the army, to say their piece. So it's more equal. On the flip side, though, it perhaps lacked the expertise needed for people to make decisions. So an example was there was no jury in ancient Athens. The people formed the court. The people brought charges against whoever they wished, as long as they got two other people to bring the charges as well. And Plato had an issue with both of those areas. So he created the Republic to say, what if we had this city? What if we had a city where people had stable order in their souls, so they were happy, and had stable order in politics, so there was unity? And what he said was that although we don't want the desire for power, we need power to check and control the desire of it in others. So those leaders that really want power, and if you'd said to someone, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a CEO. For mm -hmm. Plato, that would be an instant black mark. Hold on, they want power. They're going to wield it inappropriately. They can't lead. But for someone who would say, oh, I want to be a philosopher, I'd want to be a thinker, and had no desire for leadership explicitly, that for Plato is the perfect leader. Democracy in ancient Athens was, was different to how it was today because it really did afford everyone equal political participation. 
decisions made by an assembly, no professional judges, as I've mentioned. And Plato saw this as crucially flawed. Democratic rivalry, which I think we see in today's world as well, as well as business rivalry, meant there was tension between rich and poor. Let's look Mm -hmm. at businesses. How often do we think about salary, the salary between executives and non-executives, the salary between men and women, the salary Mm -hmm. between certain uh, discriminated fields and certain other non-discriminated fields? It's the same thing. There's a rivalry there that Plato saw that was unhelpful. Then there was also the encouragement and desire for power and influence. And he said that that subjected or subverted the achievement of happiness. If we're constantly striving for wealth, for expansion, for materialistic goods and power, we're not going to be happy. So that was one of the key challenges that Plato brought against his people at the time. Mm. What, what Plato... A- what about, because you're saying, uh, what about servant leadership? Um, yes. Would you say that, was it, would that be approved by, um, so servant leadership is when you're leading through helping people. Would that be uh, approved by Plato? <laughs> I, I think he would. Yeah. I think he would. The, the interesting challenge that you raised there, Maria, would be what if someone said, I want to be a leader. So they're expressing a desire for power. But they said what you just mentioned, I want to be a leader by serving the people. Then I think Plato would be more comfortable with that as a concept than I want to be a leader because of the power. But there would still be a wariness over the explicit desire to hold power in order to help. Mm. I think Plato would say you can help people without power and you should have that as a mantra. So, in fact, if someone said, I only want to help people. And then there was a position of leadership available and you in a modern company today were looking at your candidates. You had someone with a great management degree. You had someone with um, a desire for leadership and someone who just said, I want to help people. Plato would try and pick that person because Mm. they wish knowledge and they wish to help others. Mm. So I think that's probably the key concept of the reluctant leader. And he certainly did wish to help. I think his... His criteria for the good rule, in effect, for good leadership was expertise, stability and unity and order and happiness. And the idea of expertise comes from a real willingness to gain knowledge, a real willingness to seek seek goodness in the world, to develop yourself by being excited by learning, by asking good questions that perhaps, as, as we've discussed, Maria, have no answer. But that's the critical aspect here to consider. And the theme of the Republic underlying it all is maturity. We have to be mature adults about this. We have to stop scrabbling about trying to reach the top at the expense of what? I think in modern society, we're now realising at the expense of the environment, at the expense of equality amongst other people, that desire for wealth and status has, in Plato's mind, blinded people to what makes us happy, and what makes us good rulers and good leaders. And when we think about Socrates, who I've mentioned before, who Plato based a lot of his philosophy on, Socrates describes a good state as eudaimonia, happiness in terms of flourishing. And that was based on four virtues, which you could say in modern leadership, you should look for in talent programs, leadership programs. You should look for people who have wisdom, courage, self-discipline and a sense of justice. 
And so that would be what Plato would look at if you had a tick checkbox as well for a modern leader would be to say, do they have knowledge and wisdom of things? Do they have the courage to stand up for what they believe in? Are they self-disciplined enough not to use power inappropriately? And do they know what's right or wrong? What's justly owed? What that system of ethics is? And I think that would be some interesting questions to ask modern leaders today. Is that expected and do they have it? Hmm. So those are, those are, go on, Yeah, Could be some interesting recruitment questions. Those, well, exactly. Yeah. And, and that, that's what perhaps we can look into in modern leadership is what do we need to ask to get the leaders that we require? And also with the leaders we currently have, how do we need to reflect on the way they've led or how they might lead to get more virtuous leaders and more reluctant leaders? Mm. Not that they don't want to lead when they're in the position, but that when they are there, they really know what their approach is and what their purpose is. And it isn't to exploit and it isn't to gain great wealth. It's, as you've said, to help and to help others to flourish as well. So the interesting set of relationships that Plato also brings up are the ones around reason, indignation or what we call spirit and appetite. The reason is the thing that should govern everything. Indignation and spirit are things that can help reason govern and appetite is that appetite for, in effect, wealth and power. It's it's the beast aspect. And he'd say that good leaders should be rational. I think that's a pretty sensible approach to leadership, that they should have an understanding of how to subject that appetite that perhaps other leaders have just to expand their business, gain wealth and to exploit people. That's where self-discipline comes into it. Um, there is a huge tie of ethics into what Plato does. And I've seen this in business today. One of the big things that I work on is ethics within organizations and understanding that that's not just what happens when things go wrong, but how do we really guide people to good systems of ethics, first of all? Maria, in your work, have you ever come across ethics as a function, for example? Um, Yes, I have. globally uh, the ethics function uh, supported by the global organization yes absolutely and um, that hopefully is, is gaining traction have, have you seen it operate in any particular fields or any particular ways i don't uh, this is more that i've heard that it exists but i think it was more a matter of uh, can you accept this gift uh, is this considered um, bribe or not on these kind of things but i i, I do not have full visibility into exactly Absolutely. what they did yeah and, <laughs> so and that, that that i think is exactly how people view it bribery yeah. corruption in effect when things go wrong the ethics institute gets involved or the ethics function mm. comes in and i think that's an interesting flip of ethics from what it used to be which was a guiding policy some underlying questions and how to live a just life mm. to how to react when justice has gone wrong when people have broken the rules and Yet Plato ties ethics into politics really, really closely and basically says that if justice is in everyone, if everyone's interest, so too is being ruled by reason, which we've described before. And if it's not your own reason, it's the reason of someone else. It's the reason of that reluctant leader who can use justice appropriately, use reason appropriately and reach a good outcome for everyone. 
and that that rule is necessary to make up for the inevitable ethical deficiency of most people. So one of the perhaps negative aspects of Plato's philosophy is he didn't think that most people were ethical. He didn't trust that they were. And so this reluctant leader has to be someone who is able to wield power appropriately to check it in others so that people don't get abused and don't get used, but also allow the people to trust that they'll do that. So it's a very fine line between having Mm. power and using it appropriately. Now, Plato very explicitly said that philosophers are that perfect leader. It's, It's a fascinating perception in the Republic, but he said that, in effect, those individuals are only seeking knowledge. That's what philosophers should do. And that if you give them a good enough education and a good enough interest in learning, that they will only focus on learning and they won't focus on gaining power for the sake of power. So that when you then put them in that position, they'll be checked about using that power too much because they just won't want it. And they'll have this psychological check around the idea of knowing virtue and knowing wisdom. So you've given them the training to lead appropriately. And that's probably the underlying tone of Plato's Republic is that in his ideal world, these philosophical rulers who have a natural love of knowledge and a knowledge of what is good will lead really well. They won't exploit and they won't destroy. They will just do what is best for those around them. And that natural desire to do good and pursue what they believe to be good will hopefully lead them and their organisation to better avenues as well. So if you look at modern tech companies, for example, we need to look at people who have either been trained in philosophy or understand philosophy and then utilise that to say, focus on knowledge, focus on the knowledge of your company, your area, your business, your industry. In politics, we'd say, focus on the knowledge of politics, focus on the knowledge of your people, focus on the knowledge of your delegates. And after you've done that, you get the position of power. But it can't be what you aim for. It can't be your goal. And that's the concept of the reluctant leader for Plato. Mm. Mm. <laughs> any, any further thoughts on that? Otherwise, I'll move on to philosopher number two. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of things you can uh, reflect on, you know, also like the outer world, like, uh, you know, for example, charismatic leaders might be needed in in the marketplace to communicate your vision and, and these things, even though the company is doing something good for the world. Um, so there's probably a lot of complicating factors <laughs> yes. uh, in a, in a um, context of managing a business compared to just trying to but yeah, yeah, there's a lot of things. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And this is the key challenge that we might get to at the end of these four philosophers is it's very easy to say that's the ideal leader. They must be knowledgeable. They must mm-hmm. focus purely on something other than leadership. And what about the CEO of that major business that needs to think about supply chain shortages because of the war with Ukraine or the COVID restrictions, which have Mm. meant all of his people don't want to come back into work anymore and they're all working from home. These are very practical challenges. And the response I'd give to that is these are thought methods. Plato, Epicurus, uh, Plutarch, they came along with ideas of thought, ideas of how to overcome challenge. And that can be any practical challenge. So it can't be as stringent as just saying the thinking philosopher will only think they'll never do. It's about how they do 
and the method of their thinking. Mm. And that's what we perhaps miss today when we put people in a position and say they just have to think about procurement and supply chain, governance, engineering. There's a more holistic approach here, which mm. could be beneficial. Mm. Yeah. So the second philosopher, which I wanted to bring today, is another ancient Greek, not quite as ancient. He's only from 300 BC, but he's called Epicurus. And he wrote a collection of works called The Art of Happiness. Now, I'll term the Epicurean leader the hedonistic leader. And hedonism comes with some very negative connotations in today's world. But we'll slowly debunk that today by saying that in Epicurean life, hedonism wasn't an excess of pleasure. The Epicurean way was saying we need to reach contentedness by removing anxiety. And if you remove anxiety, you'll raise yourself up from, let's say, minus five, when you're very anxious, to zero. And zero is your state of content. It doesn't mean you're drinking a beautiful red wine. It doesn't mean that you're standing on the, the ocean looking out of a beautiful view. It just means you're at a state of ataraxia. That's wonderful contentedness. And that's what I'll say by the hedonistic leader. It's not a leader who's looking for the best, the boldest, the brightest. It's a leader who's looking to remove those anxieties from himself, herself, or their workers in order to allow them to perform in a contented state. And the reason I think this is quite different in modern society is if you look at the big tech firms, if you look at a large number of organizations, I think people are feeling increasingly anxious, increasingly pressured. We have a modern world where we can now do our work on our mobile phone. We can take our phone out to the garden. We can sit on a train and do it. We can do work from all over the place. Whilst we're also trying to buy flats or renovate houses or organize our social lives, walk the dog, feed the kids, take them to school. There's so much on our mind that I think we can be weighed down by the expectation from ourselves, from our leaders, to do as much as possible with the time given. And I'd suggest with an Epicurean mindset, the hedonistic leader would say, remove those little anxieties as much as you can and get back to a state of contentedness. It doesn't mean I'm going to throw an extra £100,000 at your bank account because there's a really stressful period. That would be adding pleasure to a, to a period where really what we need to do is remove anxiety. So that's what we'll do by redefining hedonism. That sounds more like a, a Buddhism-ish. Yes. Similarities, at least. There are huge similarities between Buddhism and Epicureanism. And there are there are more, there's a wealth of information you can read on Buddhism or the Indian philosophies or Confucian philosophy from China, which will help support this point of view or vice versa. I think you've put on a really good point there, Maria, which is it's trying to remain calm. It's trying to refocus your efforts and not feel like a spiky ball being pulled in all directions. You need to be more of a sphere. You need to have rounded edges. You need to be really consistent with how you give your time to people, to your work and to aspects of society and, and your profession that can actually help rather than hinder you. One thing I quite like to discuss in work myself is the idea of priorities being a plural. The word priority 
was a singular word up until about the 1900s. But now we have priorities, which by definition shouldn't exist. There should only be one priority and everything else should just be activity. But this is the world we live in. We're constantly being pulled in directions where a bit of Buddhism, as you say, some reflection would be really useful. So what Epicurus did as a teacher and as a leader was he thought very long and very hard about philosophy. And that's one thing I'd suggest for modern leaders today. If you're taking an Epicurean view, don't make snap decisions. Think long, think hard. It may be difficult when you're right in the heat of the moment and you need to just make a decision. But if you get yourself into the practice of thinking through your challenges, you can think hard without thinking for a particularly long time. And it's a very useful method to get into. And that's what Epicurus did whilst having discussions with others. If you're having that hour-long meeting, that 30-minute catch-up, make sure you're really getting to grips with the topic and you're discussing it properly. Epicurus welcomed questions and had the patience with misunderstandings and tolerated other people's views. So that modern tech leader, instead of thinking we need everything yesterday and there's someone questioning me, so I just need to shut them up, get them out and let's get on with the job, would allow those questions, try to understand their perspective and be very tolerant when that perspective did not align with their own. And I've seen this across businesses in my time where people feel I'm the leader, I know what's right, stop questioning this and let's just get on with the task at hand. Epicurus would never do that. He would always allow a question to be spoken. It didn't mean he always agreed, but he meant that everyone felt welcomed and good and comfortable. He was removing the anxiety from their life in fearing that the leader would not appreciate their views. So you can see Epicurus applying his own mantra in his own leadership to others by saying, as a leader, I will empower you by removing that fear you have for me. I'm not going to dismiss you over a bad question. I'm not going to berate you over a misunderstanding. I'm going to welcome that. And that will inevitably create more creativity and more collaboration in a world where we really, really need both of those things. I feel like a lot of tech, I come from Sweden though, so um, I might be skewed, but uh, I feel like a lot of tech companies do uh, adopt the style, uh, the question everything style. And um, But yeah, um, I'm sure it's not like that everywhere. <laughs> I, you may but, well be mm, right. Mm. In fact, you, you probably are. Perhaps they are setting the scene from an Epicurean standpoint mm. on questioning. Do you think when they do open that up that they really listen to everything that's fed back. I feel like that has been my um, my experience, but um, I cannot know if everyone f- has felt the same way. Absolutely. So, I, in which case, mm-hmm. yeah, in I just feel that I felt, feel like my ideas have been listened to. Yes, that's. That's perfect. And that's how it should be in wider society, too. So perhaps we can use this as a good way to celebrate tech leadership in taking an Epicurean approach, welcoming ideas, making people feel like they've had their anxieties removed. And that should form a role model for other business, because there are older companies and certainly political organizations and other leaders who don't do that. So there's a good example there to celebrate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
it's it's interesting thinking about removing the anxiety and one aspect that Epicurus wished to focus on was freeing yourself from what he called crippling liabilities. Now, he had these as threefold. Um, the first was fear of the gods. Back then in ancient Greece, the gods were a very powerful force. I will relate that to modern leadership by saying fear of leaders. So that's one mm -hmm. of the first liabilities we've spoken of. His second one was fear of death. So he said that people's ability or fear of death was, was really restricting them from living a good life. Apply that to leadership, I would say fear of dismissal or unemployment from a business. If you can remove that fear of dismissal from your employees as a leader, then you'll gain people that are more motivated, more comfortable, and will, I believe, work harder to achieve an aim. And the third one was what he called fear of the torments of hell, which is an interesting one to try to compare to the modern world. But I'd say things like disciplinaries, grievances, the process by which people are dragged through something when things have gone wrong. So what I would suggest is an Epicurean leader would try to remove those liabilities from their, their staff. It doesn't mean that you don't remove people or don't have grievance processes. But if you can remove the fear of leadership, remove the fear of dismissal and remove the fear of disciplinary, then you remove anxieties from a, an employee base, which allows them to flourish, which I think is quite good. Inevitably, Epicurean worked on this pleasure-pain principle, the balancing act of the removal of pain, which therefore increases your pleasure because it gets you to a state of contentedness rather than adding pleasure. And hedonism, as he would see it, judges an act as moral or immoral by you know, the experience it produces. So a leader from a hedonistic perspective would look at his action or her action and say, this produces pleasure, that's a good thing. If it produces pain and anxiety, it's a bad thing. So that's another way in which the Epicurean leader, the hedonistic leader should act, according to Epicurus, is if it creates anxiety, you shouldn't do it on the, on the whole. If it creates good, creates contentedness, then you should do it. It's all relative. It's not absolute. It's quite ambiguous. And it does open leadership up to criticism. What if what you think is good is not what other people think is good? What about the long or short term implications of good versus bad? We go on a run because we know it's good for us. That run might be quite painful at the time, but inevitably the good outweighs the pain in the long run. That's the sort of assessment we have to make in an Epicurean way when we have leadership decisions to uh, present to us. So that's the crux of Epicurean philosophy, really, is look for the good life, plain living and deep thinking. Those are the two key aspects. Be disciplined, curtail your desires for wealth, status and power, detached from the socially accepted or socially expected norms of great grade, great salary, great education. And one of the slightly left field aspects of Epicurean philosophy is a complete withdrawal from active participation in the community. He's, he sort of thought that really to do this, to achieve it like the Buddha, you have to slightly remove yourself. I wouldn't suggest that's a particularly good thing for a modern leader. I don't think that every aspect of Epicurean philosophy should be applied. I don't think you should withdraw. But perhaps we can look at that and say every now and again, it's good for you to take a quiet moment to reflect. Take a moment to yourself and go, was that the right thing? 
did I really create contentedness in my staff here? And if you can do that, if you can be disciplined and deal with your desires, then instead of it being self-protective and hedonistic, as it as we see hedonism today, it's hedonistic in the way that Epicurean would mean. It's looking outwards, trying to mitigate anxiety and increase contentedness, and to seek the good in others and yourself based on the removal of the pain that can be created from your actions. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I so um, third philosopher mm. then, mm. who also was a, a Roman emperor, is Marcus Aurelius. Have you come across Marcus Aurelius? Actually not, no. The only reason I ask is over the last two years, I've heard people speak about him more and more based on his stoic approach. So Marcus Stoicism, I've heard it, yeah. (laughs) There we are, Stoicism. So Marcus Aurelius was a famous stoic, and I'll term this the stoic leader. Marcus Aurelius held a diary or kept a diary when he was Roman emperor, which after his death was then found and it's subsequently been published and it is a brilliant stoic approach to life and leadership. The, what, is, what does stoicism mean? Stoicism means focusing on the here and now, not worrying about the future at the expense of the present, and not dwelling too much on the past, again, at the expense of the present. So the reason I've seen it come up so much in the last couple of years is people were suddenly sitting at home going, oh, no. I had a holiday planned and now I can't go. I had this promotion, which I haven't got. Last year I had a birthday party and now I don't. I'm so worried and stressed that my future is not going to be as good as my past and I'm forgetting to live in the present. And a stoic attitude would say, the future hasn't happened. The past you can't change. So focus on the present moment. That's the one aspect that you can live and affect and influence everything else you've just got to live with and that's that underpins stoicism so the stoic leader then focusing on marcus aurelius's words here would say don't focus on the trivial really be clear about your purpose in the organization day by day month on month this is what we're aiming for We might have a goal in the future. Marcus Aurelius doesn't say that you can't have a five-year plan or a 10-year vision, but it's about saying, if we're going to reach this point, what do we do today to really influence it? You never say, I have no time to spare. And that, I think, is critical Mm. for modern leadership. How often, Maria, have you you heard someone say, I don't have time? It just happens. I heard that you should instead say, when should we make time? Absolutely. That's a really nice one. I haven't heard that one before, mm. but I prefer that. Mm. It's more engaging and it's more positive. Mm. And if you think about leadership, if you'd asked a manager, can we have this? And they'd said, no, I don't have time. You feel dismissed. You feel like there are other more important things than what you are focusing on. But if we respond like you've just done, Maria, and say, when can we make time? That's a completely different answer. Mm. And that's really critical for stoicism. Never think that certain things are more important or people are more important than other aspects. You may need to focus on them differently, 
but make sure everyone is appreciated and everything is appreciated. And what Marcus Aurelius would have said as well is support those with expertise. You know, look to what ought to be done, not the reputation which is obtained by one's acts. And I really like that quote. Know who the experts are, support them as a leader. You might not and generally won't be the expert in the room, but you can listen to, appreciate and support those who are. And that's the right thing to do as opposed to what's good for your reputation. Forget your ego, just do what's right based on the people that have the knowledge. The quote that sums up what I explained earlier there, Maria, in terms of stoicism is a man cannot lose either the past or the future. For what a man has not, how can anyone take this from him? And that's absolutely crucial in understanding stoicism. You only have your ability to influence your emotions and your perspective when it comes to an event. You manage that. But your history, no one can ever take from you. And your future hasn't happened. So again, no one can take that from you. Now, it's open to challenge this as well, Maria, in that if you're the CEO of a tech firm and your future is an increased market share, you could say, absolutely, someone else can take that from you. If you're not going to work hard and come up with an innovative product, then that market share may not be available. And Marcus Aurelius wouldn't dispute the fact that you need that goal. He would dispute the fact that you focus so much on that market share that you create huge stress immense anxiety, a bit of that Epicurean focus as well, and you lose sight on what you can do today. And that's not necessary. So there are a couple of things that Marcus Aurelius would say are good leadership qualities. Again, if we think about how modern leaders can either recruit further leaders or future leaders, or they can look to themselves to develop these qualities, he would say sincerity, gravity, benevolence, and freedom from trifling, which is a great phrase because none of us want to just trifle about all day. We want to focus on things that are really impactful in the moment, mm. in the day that we're currently living in. So that was a lot of complicated words there um, for a non-native yes. English speaker. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we'll, we'll go with, um, we'll go one by one then. So mm. sincerity. Mm. So to be sincere is to have an authentic good intention. So if I'm speaking to you sincerely, I want to be here, you can tell I want to be here, and you can tell I care. Mm. So modern leaders shouldn't just hold a meeting with you, and then they're looking out the window, they're checking their watch, they evidently aren't sincere about the topic of conversation. Gravity is giving weight of importance to what you're saying. Mm -hmm, okay. So if you're having a one-to-one -one again, while sincerity is saying, I really want to be here, gravity is saying, this is your professional review. This is very important to you and you have my time wholeheartedly. Benevolence is empathy, understanding, mm. appreciating others. And so the modern leader here with benevolence should understand that when they run a major firm, a major tech firm, they may well have thousands of employees under their care who have salaries and who have lives that depend on the decent working environment, the interactions with other people. They have a customer base that may well be using their products. So they have to understand where that product's going, 
what the outputs of those products will be. What are the mental ramifications, let's think social media, of what we're doing here? A benevolent leader would consider that and not just focus on profit and expansion at the expense of the people that they're interacting with. And then freedom from trifling. Trifling is just a focus on minor concerns. Mm. So you'd focus on big things, not at the expense of everything else, but that don't worry about the little trifles. They'll work themselves out. Mm. He was a big advocate of authenticity, I think, and that links into sincerity. So he said that outward show is a wonderful perverter of the reason. Rational thought again flows through his philosophy as it did with Plato. It's not about how you look. It's not about the shiny sign above your tech door. It's not about the title you hold. If you're the leader of that business, you should just act with your reason, act because it's the rational thing to do, not because you have a massive salary and a huge job title. That's not what makes you a great leader. And we have the power over how we react to those situations when they're presented. So that's the mastery which he wants to bring in here to say, when things happen, just deal with it as you think they should be dealt with. There are three leadership practices which I'll probably end on with Marcus Aurelius then. If you are a leader, you can think about these things. First of all, be rational, as mentioned. That means a discriminating attention to every individual thing. Discriminating in a positive sense that you understand how to separate, you understand the values of each, and every aspect that you look at, every part of this program, project, or business, you pay real attention to. That's where rationality comes in. He would say, show equanimity. Equanimity is voluntary acceptance of the things assigned to you by nature. So as a leader, if COVID occurs, to show equanimity would be to say, COVID has occurred. There's nothing I can do about it. How do we react? Some people, when COVID occurred, would have got quite angry, would have got quite stressed. It's happened. There's nothing we can do. We just need to deal with the situation. And finally, be magnanimous. Magnanimous is the elevation of the intelligence above the pleasures. So as a leader... Marcus Aurelius was really keen on saying, be intelligent, use your brain, work things through, and that is more important than seeking pleasure from what you do. The difference between the Epicurean approach, which is remove anxiety to gain that state of pleasure or contentedness, Marcus Aurelius said, pleasure isn't the goal here. You're a leader, you're here to use your brain, you're here to act rationally. It's a slightly different approach. So that deals with the first three then. We've got mm. Plato, we've got Epicurus, and we've got Marcus Aurelius. And well, just one comment on 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 uh, so you're saying that he was saying that uh, you should not focus upon the present you should only focus on the present, you should not focus on the past or the future. Mm. Uh, however, um, I think you know a good leader is prepared for what is coming in the future. Yes. You know, uh, so uh, it's, it's, uh, you should s- still, you know, predict some of the things that you can happen and make sure that you are well prepared. Like you don't have to be, have, you don't have to predict every single scenario, but it's good to, you know, 
um, otherwise, I think it would be bad. It would be quite a bad leader if, if yes. uh, you know, something happened and you did not even have, you know, band aids in the office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or no yeah. fire extinguishers. Or yeah. Yes, and and it's a brilliant challenge, Maria, mm. to that approach. I don't think, in my mind, that Marcus is saying, "Don't consider the future. Mm. Don't have your five year plan. Don't do business continuity management." don't have fire escapes on the building. It's more that if you have that plan, and he probably suggests you do need those plans, don't worry about it. And if those plans change, you need to only look to your reaction to the change, not change itself. So we could definitely make it more explicit. And I think with, with modern leadership in a stoic approach, we would have to say the modern leader must consider the future but mustn't worry about the future. It must learn from the past, don't ignore it, but can't dwell on the past. So they should say, we have this five-year plan, we might plan for a cyber attack so we've got good security. We look back on the past and say there was a cyber attack, so we know this is a vulnerability. They wouldn't get stuck on the past and say, well, it's happened once, it'll happen again, well, I'm not going to do anything about it, let's not worry probably two different approaches there i reckon yeah again sounds quite a lot like buddhism but the buddha yeah. was a philosopher so <laughs> exactly yeah and um it's almost worth doing a section or another talk on eastern philosophy given this is a very western philosophy focus yeah because yeah. you're right there's so much to learn from the buddha mm-hmm. so the fourth one <laughs> so the fourth one the last one is plutarch and plutarch i will say the role model leader Plutarch existed in 45 to 125 AD. So this was during the Roman Empire and actually at its height. He was a Greek philosopher, but he was also discussing and working with the Roman Senate a great deal. So he had both Roman and Greek connections. He really wanted others to allow the effect of philosophy to penetrate their daily lives. Philosophy for him was something that affected their minds, affected their way of life, and was very important. He created this collection of works called Parallel Lives. It's a fascinating biographical take on key individuals throughout Greek and Roman history. And what he did so brilliantly was he paired one Greek with one Roman and compared the two. And what that allowed was you to see what are their virtues, what are their vices, and what can I learn from this? Plutarch's entire methodology was role modeling. And that's what I would suggest a modern leader taking Plutarch's approach would do. They themselves would role model themselves on a leader of the past or a leader currently. Ideally, two, compare yourself against them Take the good virtues of those leaders and understand the vices. You can learn from people that fail as much as you can learn from people that succeed. And then equally, as that leader, you should encourage role modelling in your organisation too. Perhaps we see them in coaching, perhaps we see them in buddying schemes or mentorship programmes. But the ability to say, here are some people that have gained success and here are some people that have had great failures. What do we learn? And Plutarch said that 
my purpose was not to gather meaningless historical data, he wasn't a historian, but to record data which promote the understanding of character and personality. Now, when you look at modern tech companies, data is used so often. And Plutarch back in 45 AD was aware that data is useful, but it's the application and understanding of that data which is critical. He was looking at character. He wasn't just presenting fact for the sake of it. It doesn't look at the best way to live, like Plato, like Epicurus, like Marcus Aurelius. That was saying, how do we reach contentedness? How do we reach a good republic? It's more about how real people in real situations either achieved or didn't achieve. And that's what's important to Plutarch. So he would say that the focus is on learnings. Exactly, learnings. Yeah. And the application of learning to yourself afterwards. What, what do you gain from this? He looked um, at the fact that the basic philosophy of ethics for him was um, the constant practice of virtues which improved yourself. And that's virtues that you can learn from these individuals, from these parallel lives to help you. There was a way that he would present to overcome faults. I'll call them faults and um, anger, for example. So the modern leader using Plutarch's method would be able to identify discrepancies in their own character or flaws that they wanted to work on. And what Plutarch would say is, first of all, you need to take command of that fault, anger. You need to make yourself sensitive to the natures of that fault, its effects on you and wider people, why it occurs, what does it produce, and then observe this in others. So if you think, I get really angry whenever anyone challenges me in a meeting, observe someone else getting angry in a meeting as a bystander. You'll see the tension in the room change. You'll see people close in on themselves. You'll see the questions stop being asked. The observation allows you to hold a mirror to yourself in that scenario. And that's what Plutarch's mm -hmm. philosophy does, is he presents you role models that you either do or don't want to mirror, mm -hmm. which is a very powerful thing. And again, I'd suggest that in modern leadership today, you can model your tech company on other companies. You can do this not only with people, but with businesses. We do it with case studies, for example. But as a leader, to understand the value and power of role modeling is crucial. That's what Plutarch said was incredibly important. He presents statesmen in his lives. They are political leaders. They are military leaders. Leadership is considered and evaluated through that medium of observation. And we fashion our own lives through that. He doesn't glorify them. He doesn't say they're unique. He's really, really clear on the fact they're people. And human beings have rational thoughts. Anyone can be rational. You just need to be in active cooperation with other rational people. So again, cooperation probably underpins most of Plutarch's philosophy here. We've spoken about role modeling. That alone is a cooperation between you and the role model, whether that's on a piece of paper, whether that's in a meeting. The cooperation of minds is crucial. You can't be a leader on your own. If you cooperate with people, Plutarch thought that two things were possible. You could gain objective knowledge of what constitutes the best in human life. 
and a corresponding character and way of life that you'd want to impart. And so that's what Plutarch wishes at the end of his parallel lives for you to come away with. Some people to compare yourself against, not in a one-upmanship, not in I haven't done enough or I've done better, but so that you can genuinely say they were real, they acted in this way, it resulted in this achievement or this disaster. What can I learn? And how do I apply that to my life? So those four leaders then are Plato dealing with the reluctant leader, someone who was never called to lead, but because their focus is on something else, they're a very good leader because they look after their people. Epicurus and the hedonistic leader trying to remove anxiety in order to get to a state of contentedness in both yourself and others. The stoic leader with Marcus Aurelius trying to remove the focus on the past and the future and focus on the present. Really give yourself time for what's important. And then finally, Plutarch and the role modeler, the person who not only for themselves, but for their people, gives good role models to learn from and to understand what not to do from. Mm. And those are four suggested approaches that have their flaws, as anything does, but perhaps some little nuggets of information for the modern leader in today's world. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, been a super good uh, uh, crash course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to condense 2,000 years of thought into an hour. Oh, it's it's perfect. So do you think that we'll see um, more commercial uh, philosophers in the future, or do you see they will continue to be rare? (laughs) So I really hope we do. I really, really hope we do. I think that another aspect that that Plato was quite keen on was that... um, Plato or Plutarch, they were advisors. I am a huge advocate of there being a philosopher in every room, for example. And it's the mantra of the philosophy business that I've set up. And through that business, I I work with a colleague of mine, Dr. Brennan Jacoby, who I believe you know, Maria, also runs a company called Philosophy at Work. What we do is, is we help businesses to think through their problems. I think that's where philosophers can best add value in today's society. I'd like in businesses to see philosophers actually have a role as an advisor, as a guider. If you look in AI and automation today, what are the ethics of AI? How do we really consider what we are creating, what controls we have in place for these incredibly intelligent machines that are designed for, well, what purpose? What boundaries do we put in place? It's not that philosophers, ethicists know the answers. That's absolutely not the case. But that we question. And I think there's a huge, huge opportunity to see more professional philosophers out there just to provide that questioning ear, that questioning eye, and go, have we thought about that? Is that the right thing to do? Maybe, maybe not. But there are some good theories out there to help support that. There's a lot of agile coaches these these days in the tech sector. Maybe we'll see philosophy coaches. To some extent, I do think that the agile coaches are the ones that help us to think a little bit more. Um, yeah. but, maybe, but maybe they're not philosophers. Um, but, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> it, it could well be yeah. that we merge the two, that philosophers get agile learnings, ag- agile coaches get philosophical learnings. Mm-hmm. There are places for all of these in our society. 
I think that to view philosophy, though, as a an academic, purely academic discipline, something that's ancient and not useful, is to misunderstand its practical application. The practical application is to elevate human thought, expand it, to question when no one else is questioning, because the one thing, in my opinion, that would be terrible for human society is if we all sit in a room and we're all nodding away without anyone shaking their head and groupthink would be a terrible scenario one interesting factor for all these philosophers is is Mm -hmm. many of them ended up dying because of the beliefs that they held and they were killed by their own people purely because they expressed views that went against either the current leadership or government or because they were so outrageous at the time no one else had really appreciated them yeah turns out later they they regretted slightly killing these wonderful minds that were Mm. creating such wonderful advances at Mm. that time Mm. but it's okay to challenge Mm. so to wrap up then if anyone uh, feel like digging into this a bit more do you recommend any readings or podcasts or whatnot (laughs) yes i would definitely recommend some some readings so the books that a lot of the information has come from today is Plato's Republic. It's a brilliant book looking at what we'd call dystopian futures at the moment. What what would a city look like if Plato had invented it? Epicurus's book is The Art of Happiness. Plutarch's book is Greek Lives. Marcus Aurelius's book is The Meditations. But if you really want a good book on world philosophy, because I think it's really important to expand above and beyond just uh, what we've discussed today, then How the World Thinks by Julian Baghini is a really good book that looks at the Eastern philosophy and the Eastern philosophical traditions in comparison to the West and what we've learned and the intertwining relationships between the two. So I suggest those are some really good books to get your teeth into. Nice. Thank you for that tip. And thank you so much for joining today. It's been a pleasure having you here um, um, and learning more about all these philosophers. <laughs> oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute delight. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And if you want to read up more about the guest, then you can go to the show notes to get all of the links. And also, if you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest episode. Thank you for today. See you in the next episode.